Welcome to Ed Talks, an audio podcast co-presented by Achieve Twin Cities and Graves Ventures, a project of the Graves Foundation. Ed Talks is a lively series of community conversations about public education and related issues that impact our young people. This Ed Talks is titled Shifting the Narrative About the Teaching Profession. Despite the critical role educators play in shaping our young people, the teaching profession in the U.S. has been losing respect and admiration, with negative messages perpetuating an unflattering and incomplete image of a viable and impactful profession. Increasing teacher diversity is a critical component in the effort to elevate the teaching profession. This Ed Talks is titled, What's Keeping Teachers of Color Out of Minnesota Classrooms and How Can We Fix It? Although Minnesota has started to move the needle on teacher diversity, we still have a very long way to go. Over the next few years, policymakers have created a variety of incentives to increase the number of teachers of color in our state, along with some changes to teacher preparation and licensure systems, but too many obstacles remain. This Ed Talks features three education professionals who will share their insights from people of color who were at one time considering a career in education, but ultimately changed their minds and did not pursue this field. Josh Croson is Executive Director of Ed Allies. Habenkerger Gergish is an educator at the High School for Recording Arts. And Jocelyn McQuarter is a local government engagement manager. This Ed Talk was recorded at Ice House on November 13th, 2023. Thank you all. All right, let's see if I can do technology. Hey, that's me. All right. Hi, all. My name is Josh Cross, and I am the executive director of Ed Allies. Sorry, I have a little cough drop in my mouth. Um, I go by, uh, I use he and they pronouns. Um, and Ed Allies, for those of you who don't know, we're an education advocacy group that's dedicated to making sure that each and every kid has access to an excellent education. Um, we focus on statewide policymaking, elevating the voices of families and, and, and students, and, and really making sure that the research is grounded in what works best for kids, specifically kids from historically underserved communities, kids of color, low-income learners, kids with disabilities. Today we're gonna to talk a little bit about one of, there is not a single silver bullet in education, but there, one, there is one that's very close, and that's increasing teacher diversity. So a little bit about my story. I am that four-year-old in the middle. I don't think I've changed much. Um, <laughs> the beautiful woman to my right is my mother. She's a Filipino immigrant. She moved to the United States at age five. The goofball to my left is my father, Sergeant Crossan. They met in high school, a high school where I was destined to go with a 17% high school graduation rate. Um, my mom was expelled and suspended several times throughout high school. In our work, I often talked to my mom and I was like, hey, we're trying, to, we're trying to outlaw that. My dad barely graduated high school and at age 60 earned his bachelor's, uh, his BA. Um, so we celebrated that. Um, but all to, to say that the community that I come from was uh, one of where we were destined to not do well, right? Um, my mom worked three jobs, a Herculean effort to put me through to a high school that had a 98% high school graduation rate. And looking at my high school friends and my middle school friends, no one was more intelligent or harder working than the other group. It was what we were given at the time we were born, our zip codes, um, the color of our skin, our abilities and disabilities. So after graduating high school, um, I went to college, uh, to Santa Clara University, where I spent more time protesting than I probably did reading or doing studies. 
Um, but during my time at Santa Clara, I was a senior in college, and I took a, an immersion trip to Tuba City, Arizona, where I was able to teach a class for a week among Native American students. And I came back and I was like, I want to become a teacher. I'm so excited about this opportunity. Went to my guidance counselor at Santa Clara and she said, you're a senior, just graduate, do something else. Becoming a teacher is too expensive, there are too many barriers for you, just do something else. And that was the end of my journey. I was exploring, I'm excited to hear from Dr. Rose Chu later today, but I was exploring the opportunity to become a teacher, but never entered the profession, never became an educator. And that happens way too often for people of color. And those are some of the students at Tuba City that, um, that inspired me in that journey. Why we're talking about educators of color today, we know the statistics, right? We know that um, students of color, low-income learners, are not reading at grade level to where we need, to, where we need them to, to read. But one startling stat that I see here in this graph is if you look at our low-income learners, they are performing at higher rates than, um, than students of color generally. I actually looked at the data recently and saw that homeless white students are outperforming black and Native American students in the state of Minnesota. Homeless white students are outperforming all black and Native American students in the state of Minnesota. So this problem that exists is class, but it's, it is race. And those, we can't conflate the two. They're related, but we have, to, we have to talk about them distinctly. And what we look like in Minnesota right now, um, the bar chart to the right is the United States. The yellow, the yellow, gotta put my cheaters on. The yellow are students of color and the blue are teachers of color. And the gaps that exist in Minnesota are somewhat related to the United States' gaps, right? We have 31% um, gap in the state of Minnesota, 35% about in the United States. But if you look at the Twin Cities, we have a wider gap in the Twin Cities than we do in the entire state of Minnesota. We have fewer teachers of color than the United States, and we have more students of color than the United States. So it's a, it's a giant gap, and it's a gap that's um, making us notorious within, within, this, uh, within this area. And we've passed policies. We've made an effort to increase teachers of color, and it's working, right? We've increased teacher diversity by about 50% over the last five years. Um, and that's, that's great, right? You can give that, give that a round of applause. We've inc we've done, we, we're doing it, right? Um, so the ways that we have been doing this is through focused policy efforts. Um, I had notes printed out, but I cannot read them. Um, so some of those policy efforts are around teacher licensure pathways. Um, we've put funding in the Collaborative Urban and Educator Program, uh, public service loan forgiveness. So some of these programs uh, are, are actually creating an effort to increase teachers of color. But some of these policies and programs are also very paternalistic, right? So a lot of the ideas around we need to provide more funding for educators of color to come to the profession, but not those educators of color, right? So whether or not they're teaching the wrong thing or whether or not they have the wrong license, we put up barriers around the policies to prevent the funding and the resources to actually get to the, to the educators. And that's why I'm super excited to welcome um, Jocelyn and Hobbin here today to talk a little bit about what those barriers are and uh, from their personal experiences. Um, lastly, or penultimately, um, 
we uh, we are work. We worked on a Jocelyn is part of a co uh, a community of action team that put together a report from educators of or people of color who wanted to be educators, and they said, but I was stopped along the way, and so we put together a report. Look out for that report. It's going to be hot off the presses soon. But we put together that report to say what are those pain points for when educators of color or people of color left the pathway to teaching. And one of the, the, um, the notes or the quotes that were most, was most notable was, I was sold a story about becoming a teacher and having class, a classroom of my own. The barriers to teaching were structural. I made it so close to the finish line. Um, and we hear that it's structural. Uh, we hear that every day. And then lastly is to, I want you all to leave with this idea that um, the reason why people of color are not elevating within the profession of teaching is not because of a, uh, a, a predisposition to, to not becoming an educator, right? I am not less likely to want to be a teacher simply because of the level of melanin in my skin. Um, and I'm working diligently with groups like Black Men Teach and other organizations that are trying to create pathways for educators of color. But the, what we need to do is make sure that the systems are changing to allow people to enter the profession. And one of these notable, the most notable quotes here is uh, from Rosalind Carter, a leader takes people where they want to go. A great leader takes people where they don't necessarily want to go, but ought to be. And in Minnesota, we have a lot of leaders and not a lot of great leaders. And, uh, and it's gonna be painful to make systemic change, but it needs to happen. So I'm call, it's a call out that we need great leaders within this, within this fight. So up first, um, we have Haben Gebergergich. Haben, I'm gonna read what Haben's background and then I'm gonna kinda take, be a little bit more informal on, my, on how I got to know Haben. But Haben attended St. Paul Public Schools from grades eight, uh, K through seven. She taught high school math in Detroit and St. Paul for nearly a decade. Haben has an undergraduate degree in history from the University of Chicago and a master's degree in education from Hamlin University. She is currently a, teach, uh, she's currently a teacher's coach for Minneapolis nonprofit, Folk, uh, World Savvy, I think the World Savvy group is here, on centering students' identities and fostering their uh, capacity to work in an increasingly diverse and interconnected world. That is Hobbin, and Hobbin, how I got to know Hobbin is she was having a tough time getting a license in the state of Minnesota. With that resume, having a tough time to get a, get, a, get a license in the state. So we work together really closely on, on how we can improve the system to allow people like Hobbin to enter the profession. Um, and then Jocelyn, I'll just let them kind of transition, but Jocelyn is a product of Minneapolis Public Schools. She is an uh, alumna of Clara Barton Elementary and North High. Uh, Jocelyn spent more than five years in the education system in various roles. Currently, she's an engagement manager in local government. Jocelyn, Jocelyn holds a master's in education and her award-winning capstone project focused on racial equity and early childhood education. And how I got to know Jocelyn is she faced barriers to becoming an educator. Um, these are two black women who we should have in the classroom and replicate them, clone them, do whatever we can, but found uh, insurmountable obstacles in order to do that. Um, and so enough of me, let's hear from them. Let's hear from Hobbin. Um, like Josh mentioned, my name is Hobbin, and it's, it's honestly really an honor to be able to speak about this really important topic, which is keeping and getting our teaching uh, force to be more diverse. 
Um, I want to first just talk about what drove me to be a teacher, and it's really two things, which is uh, love and purpose. So hopefully I get these slides right. Um, so I'm an immigrant. I immigrated to the United States from Eritrea alongside my two parents and my younger brother. Um, my parents both grew up during a really violent civil war that disrupted their education. My dad had to stop going to school in eighth grade. And then my mother, who lived in this city, was luckily, lucky enough to be able to finish her diploma, but never really got to achieve the things that she wanted to ultimately do um, uh, in life. So, um, you know, their goal with getting us to America, and this is us in Addis Ababa waiting three months for paperwork so we could finally get to America. So we were staying with family, getting community support. Um, but the reason they sent, we came to uh, the United States was so that my brother and I could have an opportunity to achieve the things and achieve our greatness through education and have the right to pursue what we wanted to in life. And so um, coming, into an, uh, coming in as an immigrant student, I really struggled. Uh, this is me in kindergarten, fall 1997. Didn't know a word of English. And I'm just like, what is going on in this classroom right now? Um, and then on top of that, I really struggled, even as I excelled academically, I really struggled with my identity. What does it mean to be an Eritrean, an American, and navigate like race in America? And I never had that support to try to figure out what that looks like. Um, and so when I attended the University of Chicago and started tutoring kids on the South Side who were trying to get into college, and they just wanted to do so well on the ACT and the SAT, um, I, saw, I saw myself in those students, uh, students that were trying to navigate self-doubt, um, imposter syndrome, things that I could relate to as, as a student of color. So um, I ultimately joined Teach for America. I started teaching math, of all things. I majored in history, like Josh mentioned, but I was really good at math, too. Um, and you'll see that served me later on. But, so I came in as a non-traditional teacher, um, really eager to make a difference. Now, I'm going to talk about a couple points where I, it was hard to access education or life as an educator. And the first is that when I first graduated from college, my parents were not really supportive of me, of me becoming a teacher. Uh, a lot of times when you're a black college graduate, not all the time, but a lot of times you're the first person in your family to graduate from college. And so there's a lot of pressure to be the breadwinner. And I don't know how many of y'all know, but entering teaching is like not the way to be a breadwinner for your family, right? And so I saw a lot of my, my, uh, my peers graduate and go into consulting, going to be doctors, things that were far more lucrative. So that was like the first uh, hoop that I had to jump is deciding like I'm gonna make the sacrifice and be a teacher even though my family did not fully support it. So anyways, I did teach for four years um, and I came in really idealistic about the changes that I could make. And by the end of the four years, I'll be honest, I, I felt really disillusioned. Um, I taught mostly African-American students. And to me, the lack of support and consistency, especially among the leadership, it made me feel like a lot of times that people were gambling with my future and my students' futures. Um, and, I, and I also, one other thing that really troubled me was that I often felt like my students were capable of so much more than what they were being asked to do. Um, and I'm gonna say something that a lot of people might, it might be hard to grapple with this, but I, I feel that oftentimes the goal was always to get our black students to like achieve or be, or be like white students, and it was never about them excelling uh, beyond what white students were doing or being great in different ways. And, and I have two concrete examples of that. The, um, the first 
I'll, I'll mention what this picture is about, but the first was uh, implementing social justice mathematics in my classroom, which is all about how do we study math through community issues. So we're talking about health outcomes, we're talking about um, barriers to housing, but we're integrating mathematical concepts. And I got a lot of pushback for that, because they were like, what does this have to do with the standards, and how is this gonna help them on the SAT? And uh, there was a little faith that this is helping our students become not only math literate, but become change makers in their community. So this isn't about being like white kids, this is about doing something for their community, um, and, being, and still achieving greatness throughout. And the second barrier, uh, or the second sort of example of that is when I started instituting um, my travel program in my high school. So this is, I, I felt inspired to start traveling with my students. Um, and so we did things like we raised money to do a three-day trip to Chicago and explore um, colleges there. Uh, we ultimately did, uh, me and my advisory, we did uh, a trip to Los Angeles where we were able to not only visit a lot of amazing schools in LA like USC and UCLA and Pomona, but we were able to connect with the professors there and actually have a private dinner in one of their houses and network with those, with those professors. Um, there was a lot of pushback against that because they, I mean, number one, they didn't believe that our students could achieve that, that we could raise the money. And then this type of work is outside of the nine to five, right? And they didn't believe that we could do those things. And so that was really, that was really disillusioning for me. So, and, and throughout all of that, I'd, I had no mentorship. Nobody that had experience that looked like me that's, that could tell me, don't worry about the noise. Like, keep doing what you're doing because you're on the right track. And I'm glad I, had, I did both of those things. I'm glad I traveled with my students. I'm glad I did social justice mathematics because they made me the great teacher that I became. So when, when I decided to come back to Minnesota, um, I'll talk, here's some more trips that I've done with my young people. And so St. Paul students, we went to Harlem a couple years back. Um, and then we also went to Atlanta and visited some HBCUs back in 2020, right before COVID. Um, but I decided to move back to Minnesota and I was trying to do anything but become a teacher, anything. I almost sold insurance, that's how, that's how bad it got. I was selling life insurance, almost. Um, but I found a home at the High School for Recording Arts and, and the reason that school appealed to me is that first it centered students' culture. A lot of black students identify with hip hop and with social justice, right? And so it centered that, that piece of our students that I felt like was missing in my previous schools. And the second reason is that I had support. So my school hired coaches, mentors, people that could help me navigate, like what does hip hop pedagogy look like? That's what High School for Recording Arts is all about. So I'm like, how do I teach math and do it in a hip hop way? I didn't know how to do that. And they brought in mentors instead of just being like, well, you're black, figure it out, right? Um, which a lot of times that's, how, that's what happens. Um, but teaching is, an, it's, it's an art, it's a skill, you have to coach people to be great. Um, and so ultimately though, I'm, I'm not a teacher anymore and I think part of it is that the real challenges, a lot of the real challenges are ones that like one school cannot overcome. Um, HSRA is great in a lot of ways, but I think one, I just wanna say like black teachers, number one, they struggle for a lot of the same reasons that teachers in general struggle, so we have to address those things. We have to address making teaching more attractive, pay, respect, all of those things. But I think there's some unique challenges that uh, black teachers and teachers of color face. So one is um, that it's unequal access to the teaching profession. So how do we incentivize black teachers to get into the field? Like how do you get a black college graduate to choose teaching when their family's depending on them to become the breadwinner and to pave the way for generational wealth? Well, grants, 
and, and how do we get them to stay in teaching? And the other, um, the other thing I want to talk about is the tiered licensure system. So um, black teachers are overrepresented among tier one and tier two teachers. So one, we need, first of all, a system that recognizes that non-traditional teachers bring in so many assets, right? Um, so I talk about like I graduated with a history degree, but me, my identity and the things that I went through, like, like those, are, those were assets to my students because it drove me to do things that are outside of the norm and to be brave and to experiment, right? And to do things for my students outside of what was asked of me. So that, that is an asset. Um, and so it was very frustrating at the legislator proving that I deserve to be a teacher, having to justify that. Um, and then I also want to talk about the challenges, the challenges of being underrepresented and getting no mentorship. Um, last week there was a debate about ethnic studies and whether, <laughs> we st whether all students need ethnic studies at the, at, at, uh, the K through 12 level. And I think that debate itself, the fact that people are pushing against that, is extremely, it reveals the lack of appreciation for diversity, ethnic diversity, cultural diversity, diversity of experiences, and the cultural assets of people. So those are things that we need to address in order to retain black teachers. Um, so I hope you got something out of you know, my story. I'm, I'm happy to share it. Um, so let's, let's do what we need to do to make teaching more attractive for diverse teachers. Thank you. <laughs> Welcome. I just got one slide. So I'm gonna just say, I did my speech in front of my son earlier, he's six, kindergarten, and he gave me a round of applause, so <laughs> whatever y'all do, y'all do, and that's cool, um, but I, I got my standing ovation already, okay? <laughs> so I was a wannabe teacher, and let me tell you about my right to teach. So in 2015, I subbed a kindergarten class, and there was this beautiful black girl, curly hair, that was simply stargazed. You look like my mom, she said with so much excitement, and I'll never forget that. I was somebody familiar to her. Somebody familiar, just like this woman, Mrs. Scott, who was my preschool teacher, my first black teacher that I had. I wouldn't meet my, sec my next black teacher until about seventh grade. And this teacher, she reminded me of my grandmother. She, like me, had a right to teach, and it was a beautiful thing. And so like the next fall, um, that was when I was doing my practicum. I was you know, finishing up different observations with teachers and, and that sort of thing um, with Hamlin University. And I was, at a, I was in a senior writing class, a creative writing class. And so I was given the liberty to create my own curriculum and teach a, teach a couple lessons in the class. And I taught a class about Nike and commercials. And so, you know, I, I went through this whole, you know, presentation, I'm packing up my things, and one of the students comes up to me and they're like, yo, like, are Nike commercials that obvious? Like, in the zone, challenge, doubt, determination and triumph. And I was like, yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? 
And this day was really different because this was also the day that, you know, typically there were two African-American boys who like would have their heads down and just be, you know, chilling in the presence of someplace else, right? And so um, words matter, right? It's not that they were disengaged, but their, their presence was someplace else. And so, um, you know, when they were sitting up and watching the TV very intently and seeing just the way that I was explaining commercials and just the way that they opened up and lit up about the fact that they were being told something that they never imagined before. One was like, yo, like, I'll never look at a commercial the same way again. And to me, that's the power of teaching, right? That's the power of when you can awaken a mind that may have been sleeping, you can awaken a soul that may not have realized their potential, their power, their tenacity. That's the power of teaching. When you can, when you can illuminate something to people and make them come alive in a way that they never thought they could. When you can be taught as much as you can teach. And that's the part of, that's the part of teaching that I totally live for that I totally, within my work, whatever I do, like I choose to be that type of person. And so, um, you know, I love to write. Um, you might tell by the way I'm talking about my story. And so, uh, like my English teachers, you know, I watched all the cool movies, like, you know, Light It Up or Coach Carter, Freedom Fighters, even like Lucy Laney, love them first. Y'all watch that? Y'all know y'all watch that, right? Um, and, and you know, all these stories about, you know, teachers and, and these leaders who had these amazing savior complexes and they wanted to do something and create change. And, you know, I wanted that even if I knew that deep down, the system, the process, the experience isn't as merry as it is. But I think something within me told me that, you know, maybe it's me sitting at my desk, you know, one day and then, you know, I get that knock at the door from like my student from 20 years ago who's like, yo, like, you saved my life, or you, you totally put something into me that nobody else could. You believed in me, you, you made it possible for me to walk another day and believe in myself and believe in the power of my potential. And I wanted to be the kind of teacher that had that type of benefit, that type of experience, that knew that like, I'm building and helping students build tools and, and ways and things that they may not have had before. And so, I say all this to say, you know, I love to see the joy in learners. I, I love to see the creativity and the power and the potential. I love to be taught. Um, and I think that's the humility in me, right? Um, but I was sold a story. I was sold a story about having potentially a classroom of my own one day. And it fell short. Uh, it fell short in many ways because economically, I just couldn't make, I couldn't make the move. I couldn't make the move. Um, it was definitely, as you know, Josh talks about the structural and the economical things, like being the breadwinner of my family at the time, having a young son, um, having all these things that were just like, man, I can't make that three-month pay gap. I can't make that three-month pay gap. How, who do I need to tell that I can't make that three-month pay gap? Like, we gotta figure that out for student teaching, right? Um, and just this, conviction, right, that like, there were, these, there were these hardships that I just couldn't navigate, but that was the place I wanted to be, that's the place I know I come alive in, in the classroom. And so, having been sold this story and having this dream deferred and, you know, this, this, this desire 
being put on hold, I think it's the reason why I continue to put myself in front of youth in my work all the time, when I can, how I can. It's the reason why you know, I walk the school halls, because I know my son deserves to be here, and I know I deserve to be in that classroom and that school hall too. And so um, it's, it's the classroom chatter, it's the chatter on the playground, it's, it's the joy and, and the, the childhood development. That's such a beautiful thing when it's treated like a prize and a jewel and, a, and, the, and the love that it's truly deserved, right? Um, when we're creating systems that make it all better for the kids. And so, you know, I say all this because like, as a teacher candidate, as a wannabe teacher, I still have a right to teach. And I believe that one day we will have a chance to get this right. I believe one day that there's gonna be more black teacher candidates that look like me, more teachers of color candidates that look like me, that are walking these halls where kids are saying, hey, you look familiar and let's all be familiar too. Thank you. So I wanna close out today for this, um, this portion, but I just wanna